Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come today now to open your word, to look at how you have revealed yourself, what you've communicated to us about who you are and about who we are. God, we pray that uh, you would move in our midst, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would correct those things that need correcting, that you'd bring comfort to those hearts and minds that are in need of comfort this morning. That in the midst of everything that we encounter, everything that we deal with, Lord, that our hearts and minds would first and foremost be drawn to you and who you are and what you mean to us. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So we are moving through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the miracles that he records there. As we stated uh, in the past, Mark is a gospel that doesn't really spend a lot of time on the words of Jesus. Um, there's uh, very few words, in fact, uh, from Jesus, uh, comparatively speaking, in Mark. He is one who sees Jesus as uh, the one who acts, the one who is the expression of God's power in our midst. He is one who sees Jesus as uh, the one who uh, is the suffering servant and yet who rises above those things. Uh, and uh, because he is a suffering servant, we can identify with him, we can understand him, but because he rises above those things, uh, we know that he offers hope in the midst of our own struggles, in the midst of our own situations and circumstances. And last week, as uh, we were, as we met outside, we, we moved into a section of Mark in chapter 7 in which Jesus takes a journey outside of Israel itself. He, he heads up north into what would be modern-day Lebanon uh, and, and into that region. And uh, in his uh, journeying up there, he encounters a woman. And then as he comes back into uh, Galilee, he doesn't go, again, straight into the Israelite part of Galilee. He heads instead to the Decapolis, which is where we'll be today, where he encounters a man. And in his interactions with these two individuals, these two non-Israelites, we, we see him doing some things that are a, a bit different than we normally encounter with Jesus. With the woman, he spoke words that we don't normally hear him speak. We, 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 he had this exchange with her that is quite striking on, on many levels. And, and we talked about that last week and how that that encounter, how that engagement was meant to, to define and characterize who he is in relationship to the world and who we need to be in relationship to him. And we talked about how there is this need for humility in our disposition toward God. There is this need for recognizing God's place and our place in, in the dynamic, in the economy of the world, and, and how we need to, to use that, that mindset, that perspective of, of recognizing God's place and our place to move us to uh, steps of faith, to where we're living lives that that acknowledge his role and his position and his place, living lives that, that bring deliverance, that, that bring help, that bring rescue because of who he is. And this week, as we move into the second part of this, this narrative and the second part of this encounter, we, we see um, more about how we are to engage Jesus, how we're to engage God, and we see more about how he uh, engages us and how he views us. And so let's let's look here, beginning in verse 31 
um, chapter 7, and, and, and see how Jesus interacts with this particular man and, and what we might gain in terms of our understanding and perspective from this encounter. It says that, again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by the way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private, and after putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And immediately his ears were open, and his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed. And they were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And so in the second of miracles, we're not shocked or surprised by the words that Jesus says. We're shocked or surprised at least a little bit by the actions that he takes. Uh, this is one of the few occurrences of Jesus performing a miracle that involved some sort of manipulation of the individual. He, he often touches people as he heals them to communicate the, the intimacy, the connection that he has with them. Um, but you don't often see this almost kind of a, uh, an acting out, this, this almost parabolic expression in his actions that you see as he engages this man. And as as we look at that and we try and understand exactly what's going on here, I think we see something of his disposition towards humanity in, in what he's trying to do here and what he's trying to express here. And as we deal with our understanding of God and our relationship to him, it's important that we understand and view how God relates to us, how God understands us, how God connects with us, but also how we might take that knowledge and 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 understand that the bigger picture of what he's doing. When you look at Jesus' interaction with this man, you you, you see three things. I think three things that that kind of stand out in terms of God's understanding or God's approach to mankind. The, the first thing I think we see is that he speaks in a language that we can understand. When he engages this man, he's deaf. Uh, he, he doesn't speak clearly, the text says, which, again, is probably related to his deafness. That's a very common occurrence. When someone can't hear, they, they don't tend to speak very clearly either. But as Jesus engages this man, as, he, as he, he meets with this man in this moment, in this time, in this situation, he, he takes these extra steps, putting the, the, the fingers in the ears and, and, and spitting. Why these extra motions? Well, he's trying to speak to this deaf man. He's trying to communicate to this man that what he's doing is going to bring a change. It's going to bring a difference. To, to simply speak words to this man wouldn't make a lot of sense since the man can't hear. And so he's going to carry out these actions. He's, he's going to, to express these things. He's going to meet the man right where he's at. That's the God we serve. He meets us where we're at. He, where we're at. He communicates to us in, in language that, that we can understand, that, that we can comprehend. We see that uh, in our own life. We see that in the creation that he's built around us. We see that in 
the, the wisdom that he brings to us from friends and neighbors. We see that in his words, speaking words that are clear, expressions that, that are understandable, stories that we can relate to that reveal to us the truth of who he is. The second thing I think we see about Jesus' interaction, Jesus' disposition toward us, is that he is emotionally connected to the man here. You, you see that when it says that, that as he, he touched the man, he sighed deeply. And, and that expression is an expression we see elsewhere in, in the book of Mark. And, and it's an emotional reaction. It's an re, emotional response to what Jesus is encountering. I think sometimes we, we get the idea, and, and even in some classical theology uh, aspects, we, we get this view of God that he is somehow not emotional, that he's uh, above those sorts of things. And, and especially in our Western culture and our Western thoughts, sometimes we're, we're driven in that direction ourselves. We, we need to avoid emotions. We need to avoid letting those things take hold of us. We, we need to be distinct. Uh, distant. We need to be aloof. We need to be other than. That's the view we have of God, and so that's the view we think that we need to have as well. But that's not the God we encounter in the Bible. That's not the God we see in the Old Testament. That's not the God we see here in the New Testament as Jesus engages the people that he's ministering to. Here, as he as he's ministering, even knowing that he's going to heal this man, he sighs. There, there's this emotional outlet. There's this emotional expression. And it's not just in this encounter that we see this. We see this in, in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It says that, that he got there. He knew what was going to happen. He's already spoken words about resurrection and, and those sorts of things, living again. And then it says, Jesus wept. He grieved with them. So much so that, that everybody noticed. Everybody said what? Look how much he loves the man. And we see him weeping over Israel. We, we see him expressing these emotions. And, and they're not always these, these, these hurting emotions. There, there's positive ones in the, in the Scriptures as well. We, we see the joy of the Lord. One of my, my favorite passages is, is in the book of Zephaniah where it talks about God dancing over us. It's such a beautiful image to... To think, you know, it's not something you often consider when you think about God, uh, you know, and His relationship, His mindset toward us, that when He redeems us, he, he dances, He sings over those that He has redeemed. And, and, and to think about that is, is to see that, that God is emotional. God is connected to us in that sense. When we mourn, He mourns. When we rejoice, he rejoices. And so we see that disposition, and that in, in turn should also call us to, to be people who connect with others emotionally as well. And then the third thing is we see that he sees this man as an individual. We've seen it already in his responses, but uh, I, notice how it says here that when he encountered this man, that Jesus took him away from the crowd, verse 33, in private. Okay. I'm going to spend some time with just you. I see all these people. You see all these crowds. You see all these, all these individuals 
vying for his attention, vying for his focus. And yet he says, let's go over here. And he encounters this man on an individual basis. And again, sometimes I think we struggle with that when we think about all the prayers that have to be being prayed, prayed to God. You know, all over the world, all the prayers that are being offered up, all, all, the, all the, the worship that's being expressed, all the, the things that are occurring. I think sometimes we, we wonder, you know, who am I that, that, to think that God's even listening to me? You know, who am I to, to, to think that he's got time for me? And yet he is a God who calls us aside and who takes time with us, who spends time with us individually. And, and so you, you see this disposition that, that even though, as we noted last week, God doesn't need us, He wants us. And He reaches out to us, and He connects with us. But if that's all we see, we're only seeing part of the story. We're only seeing part of the revelation. We're only seeing part of what's supposed to be expressed in this encounter. Because there's a balance that is vital to our walk. There's a balance that's vital to our understanding of who God is and how He relates to us. It's a balance that, that helps us to, to see that at the end of the day, it's really not about us. If you just draw those three conclusions about this text, You've made this text just about us. And Jesus is never just about us. God is never just about us. He calls us to something bigger, to something greater. He calls us to a recognition of who He is. And so as we, we look back at, at these encounters, the very same things that we just pointed out, we notice this balance begin to play out. He does speak a language that we can understand. But in the midst of speaking that language, he keeps the focus on the Father. He keeps the focus on the one who leads, the one who guides. Verse 34 there, he, as, as he's speaking the words, which means to be open. As he's communicating this intimacy with this man and, and touching him and, and encountering him. An intimacy that... that Mark wants us to understand because he uses the Aramaic phrase. The only time Mark ever uses the Aramaic phrase itself is when he's talking about a very intimate moment in Jesus' life. Whether it's the, the young girl who he raises from the dead, Talitha Kaum, where he tells her, the little girl, get up. Or whether it's in the Garden of Gethsemane when he, he's praying there and it's, he's so amazed and he Abba, Father. Those are the times that we get these Aramaic phrases in the Gospel of Mark. And, and so whenever we see them, we, we know that, that Mark's trying to communicate this connection, this, this, this intimacy, this God speaking our language, if you will, type idea. But notice in the midst of doing all that, it says what? He continually looked up to heaven. He continually looked up to heaven. He wanted everyone to understand where all of this was directed, where all the attention should have been. 
not just in the healing of the man, not just in the words that are spoken, not just in the connection or the actions that he carries out, but on the Father. That that's where our focus always needs to be. That that, that is a, a, a truth that we live in and, and that we live by. And, and to understand that and to see Jesus looking to heaven and, and, and to see Jesus connecting while still also honoring the Father and, and praising the Father is, is to see that He has a balance that should encourage us, that, that, that frees us. Because if God is just us-centered, that puts, to be quite honest, in a lot of ways, that puts a lot of pressure on us. Doesn't it? I mean, think about it. If when you have somebody who's kind of always looking to you, looking at you, considering you, thinking about you, there's a certain unease that kind of settles in there. At least there is for me. Maybe maybe that's not the case for you. But you know, don't don't don't. We start saying, "Don't fret about me. I'm good." Or you know, "Don't worry about me. I'm okay." Or or you know, you know, in some cases, just give me some space, please. You know, when it when it's all focused upon us, we, we, we feel kind of this obligation to perform, if you will. But to know that God doesn't need us and that he doesn't have any ulterior motives in what he's doing. He's not, I'm going to do this for you because, you know, I want this to be the result or whatever. He's just being him. He's just loving us. He wants us. There's a freedom in that. There's a release in that. I don't have to worry about performing. I don't have to worry about, you know, doing just the right things or expressing things just the right way. He's not dependent upon me responding to him in just the appropriate way. He's going to do these things. He's going to express these things. He's going to live out these things just because that's who he is. So I'm free to be me too. I, I, I'm free to, to not get it quite right. You know? I, I think of, of, of students sometimes who, who you know, they, they have a, a, an oral presentation or something like that. And, and students who are, who are bright and intelligent and well-spoken and all of that, they can suddenly get up in front of the class and for that grade and that sort of thing, and it just all they just get all tight and just can't even express what they normally could. Given any other situation, they're well spoken and all these other things, but in that situation, they're I'm being tested, I'm being watched, I'm being tried. I, oh, if I mess this up, this this is the end of my life as I know it, and all those sorts of things. All those things pop into their head. And I think sometimes as Christians, that that's almost how. We live in relationship to God. Well, I, I don't really feel like leading in prayer because what if I mess up? What if I say the wrong words? Or maybe even just on a personal level, I, I don't know about going to God in prayer because I don't know what to pray for. What does Scripture tell us about those things? It says the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He speaks words that we didn't even know we were able to speak or, or needed to speak. Our God provides 
everything we need. He doesn't need us. He's not dependent upon us. And therefore, if we mess up, if we don't do things exactly perfectly the way we think we should, we're still good to go because that's how gracious and loving he is. And that should help us to find that balance, to keep our focus on him, to keep our attention on him. I don't have to worry about me. I can look to him. I don't have to perform for him. I can just be with him. I can just enjoy him. I can just relate to him. The second thing is he is emotionally connected to us, but he makes certain to maintain the truth even as he connects. Emotions are are wonderful things and terrible things at the same time. They are are things that help us express perhaps things that are beyond our thoughts. They are realities about who we are that, that, um, that bring connection on a whole new level. But they can also be things that can control us. They can also be aspects of who we are that, that blind us to the truth sometimes. We get so emotional, we get so worked up about something that we don't hear reason, we don't hear logic, we don't hear truth. And because of that, the long-term relationship, the long-term connection that perhaps we're seeking with that person is broken. But to know that our God is emotionally connected to us, that he weeps with us, that he rejoices with us, that that he experiences these things with us is not to believe or to expect that he's controlled by those emotions, that he's somehow limited by them. In the midst of him sighing deeply, we also hear him going on to say, don't tell anybody what's happened. And we've seen this over and over again in Mark. And and the reason God, the reason Jesus in this moment, in this time, throughout his ministry says, don't tell anybody, is because there were certain expectations about the Messiah. There were certain beliefs and, and concepts about what the Messiah would be like and what the Messiah would do and what the Messiah would ultimately bring. And Jesus knew that he came not to bring the kingdom in the terms of how those people wanted the kingdom defined, he came to bring a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that was upside down, a kingdom that was ushered in through his death, not through his slaughtering of the foes. And so he repeatedly told these people that he healed. He repeatedly told these people that he helped. Don't tell anyone. Because he wanted to be able to define to express who he was and what he was about. He wanted to be able to explain the nature of the kingdom. He wanted them to see the truth of what he was calling them to and who he was. He was maintaining the truth even as he connected with these people. The John chapter 11 passage I referred to as Jesus wept. Even as as he's weeping, even as he's experiencing that sorrow, even as he's ministering, to Mary and to Martha and 
and the hurt that they're experiencing. He says what? In the midst of that, I am the resurrection and the life. He expresses the truth. He expresses the, the, the need for him to be the center of the reality and the understandings that we had. It wasn't just about raising Lazarus. It was also about expressing the truth of who Jesus is. And here it's not just about healing this man of his deafness. It's about bringing understanding. It's about bringing clarity. The, the passage here says what? That he, he heard and he spoke clearly. And I think that that, that, that reference is more than just uh, a, a indication of the miracle that has happened here. It's a, it's a call, it's a challenge that Mark's giving to all of us. That in our response to Jesus, in our encountering of Jesus, that we hear and that we speak clearly. That, that we address the world around us, that we minister to them, that we connect with clarity about who God is. We speak the truth. And so as we live lives that uh, are affected by reality and we feel these emotions, the sadness, the joy, the anger, and the peace, as we experience those things, we have to hold on to the truth. As we see the injustice in our world, we need to be moved to righteous anger but we speak the truth in love. We, we engage our culture, not in a I'm better than you type mentality or I had it all together type mentality, but in a way instead that says, I feel what you're feeling. I experience what you're experiencing, but I know there's a way that's better. I know there's a way through this. I know there's a person there's a God that I can introduce you to that can make all the difference in the world. The third thing, very closely connected to the first two, is that though he does see us as individuals and responds to us as individuals, there is a bigger role that he plays. And we must always see that. There's a bigger purpose to his presence. There's a bigger destination to our healing than just what we experience. At the end of the narrative here, it says they were extremely astonished and they said he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And those two phrases, they don't seem all that extraordinary to us. They don't seem like they're all that big a deal. They're just Look what he did. He's, 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 he's done these miracles. But when you look at what is said and, and how it's actually said, what you see here is that these individuals are proclaiming a truth bigger than they even realize. When it says he does everything extremely well, that, that's almost uh, verbatim a, 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 a mirroring of what you find at the end of Genesis chapter 1. And he saw these things, and it was very good. That at the end of creation, God did these things, and it was very good. And the phrase here is, is 
the exact same phrase. It's the exact same conclusion. What they're saying is what? Jesus' creative powers, Jesus' miraculous powers are, are, are part of, of God's bigger plan. They're, they're part of God's creative plan and engagement with the culture, with the world. It's more than just healing this man. It's more than just answering this individual need. There is a proclamation of His glory, of His majesty that has taken place here that should lead us into awe, that should lead us into appreciation for who He is. And then the second part, He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That's almost verbatim from Isaiah 35 a proclamation of the Messiah and what the Messiah would do and the, the difference, the change that the Messiah would bring to the world. And so these Gentiles, these pagans who, who don't even have the Old Testament, who didn't use it, who didn't interact with it, who, who it wasn't part of their daily life and part of their daily experience as it was with the Jews, they're uttering truths from it just from encountering Jesus. He sees the individual, he meets the individual, but he understands and he proclaims and he imparts a truth that it's much bigger than just that individual. And as we encounter Christ, as, as we encounter him in our own lives, we, we can take comfort in the fact that he is with us, that he loves us, that he sees us as we are as, as individuals and that he's willing to to pull us aside and say, let's spend some time together, just, just you and I. But we need to see that it's not just about that. It's about something bigger. It's about a bigger calling. It's about engagement with the world. It's about a proclamation that our God is not a man-made God, that our God is not a limited God, that our God is not the things that man could make and, and create and express. Our God is bigger than that. Our God is fully capable of engaging with us and speaking to us in languages that we can understand and by means that we can understand, who is emotionally connected to us, who sees us as individuals and yet is bigger than us and, and, and bigger than that and points to the truth of His glory and His majesty. We live in a very man-centered world. What we need is to be living lives that proclaim a God-centered truth. God doesn't need us, but He wants us. Sadly, too often, we desperately need Him, but we don't want Him. And so He calls us to see His glory, to see His power and His majesty and His purposes. And in seeing those things, to move beyond our man-centered mindsets and to develop a God-centered lifestyle. That every conversation we have, every encounter we enjoy, every encounter we don't enjoy, it's driven by 
a desire to make God known, to know Him and make Him known should be the marching orders that we walk under, that we operate under, that we live under. So that every trip to the supermarket, every journey to the bank, every morning in our workplace, every evening in our homes is driven by a God-centered desire and mentality. It's not about us. It's really not. But He loves us. And we can dwell in that truth. And we can operate with freedom in that knowledge. When we let go of our pride and our arrogance. When we move beyond our selfishness. And we express faith in the one who is above it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you. God, it, it is so liberating, freeing. To realize I don't have to perform for you. I don't have to be perfect in how I express things. That I can be who I am because of who you are. But God, there, there is a, an expectation, there is a requirement placed on, on me, on all of us, that we do surrender. That we die to ourselves, that we live for you, that our lives are driven by a passion to see you proclaimed. That we humble ourselves. And in that humbling, you will lift us up to proclaim you more clearly, to engage a world more sincerely, and to live lives that show the world a bigger picture of a God who is worthy of all praise could see us through anything we might encounter. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.